Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing are Deputy Editor Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And our writers, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. This week... Bowers Pack Mag's Bloodbath. WPP Australia's COVID Horror Show. How the programmatic chain is even murkier than we thought. And more streaming manoeuvres. Well, the coronavirus is still the backdrop to just about everything we talk about. This week, we got to see the first local clues about just how bad April was for the media and marketing world. Um, Britt, I'm going to start with you. WPP, they they obviously had some information about the first quarter. And also, and this is where it begins to get real, um, some insights into how they were going in April. Yeah, so net sales fell 22% in April. And they think that based off of that, they can predict uh, a, a result of for the first half of 2020 between break even and a $10 million loss, which is obviously quite um, quite a, a gap for results there, whether or not you, you break even or you, you end up with a $10 million loss. So this was revealed this morning in WPP AUNZ's AGM and the, the main highlight or focus, I think, for the company was definitely on, on cost savings. So they've got a $70 million cost savings program and they think that the, the way they'll achieve that figure is largely through pay cuts and then redundancies when necessary. And both Jens Monsis, the CEO, and Robert Mactia, the chair, were both pretty confident that a big portion of that $70 million in savings won't just be kind of COVID-related and temporary, but will be permanent. And they were very clear that employees' salaries and hours will return to normal, but not before revenues have been restored. So it seems like employees at WPP definitely aren't close to being out of the woods yet in terms of pay cuts and those reduced hours. Look, and one of the shocking things about this, Brit, is this is the – the EBITDA earnings before interest, taxation, depreciation, amortisation number, which I can't remember WPP or STW as it was before ever having made a loss on EBITDA number before. Um, so it's just it, it shows just how bad things are that the biggest player in this market, certainly the biggest listed player as a, as a holding company, could be looking at a potential loss even as an EBITDA number. Yeah, and look, it was interesting. Jens Monsis, who has only been in the job about six months, he used a word both in the AGM presentation and then also in my interview with him, which wrapped up about half an hour ago, actually, which I hadn't heard any other CEO or really any other person in the industry use when it comes to COVID-19 and the times that we're in, and that was exciting. And he was very clear that he thinks these are exciting times in a big way, that it's a big opportunity for WPP and the industry, that it's a big opportunity for his leaders to really show that they're capable of really good leadership. Um, I also asked him about how the voluntary pay cut program is going 
sense, you know, a big sell for that was that, you know, it wasn't kind of being enforced. It was very much voluntary and they were very much mindful that people had very different circumstances and therefore might, you know, be able to help in various different ways. And he said there's been a really strong uptake of that. He kind of stressed again that, you know, a family with a mortgage or a couple where one partner has lost their job, they might have taken a very different option to someone else, but that essentially employees were presented with a menu of options, which I thought was an interesting way of framing it. So, look, I think WPP was very clear in the presentation this morning that, you know, the full year results released in February were really disappointing and and the chair said that they were not acceptable and they know that COVID has kind of just compounded that and the effects for the half-year results will really take their toll. But Yen's still kind of optimistic in some way, still saying that it's it's exciting and that it's been, you know, a chance to show solidarity at WPP. Yeah, look, it was funny because I, I obviously wasn't wasn't on your conversation with 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 Jens, but I was looking at the WPP you know report which they've obviously put up on the ASX as well, and it felt like you had a had to go quite a long way into it before you discovered that this has been disastrous for the revenues and their profitability. It was very much trying to find the bright side of you know the opportunities of disruption, helping clients through it, and all of those things and um is it is it spin or did you did you buy what he was saying did he sound genuinely energized by it look my first question to him on the record it's one that we often ask you know as we're still figuring out turning on recorders and kind of getting some small talk out of the way but the first question I wanted to ask him on the record is how are you really and you know I imagine that it's a pretty weird and strange time to be, you know, a few months into a new job and a job as big as his is. And he said, you know, I'm fine. I'm, you know, it's an exciting time. It can be viewed as a challenge or an opportunity. Um, So, I mean, I think that he does believe that. I think, you know, if he has that mindset, that's extremely impressive and, and, um, and very positive. He he referenced a German phrase where he said that roughly it translates to who wants finds ways and who doesn't finds reasons and said that, you know, the culture at WPP is coming closer together than ever. It means that he can kind of connect with all of his employees across different regions in the same way because obviously, you know, he's not physically in New Zealand usually anyway. And he actually, which I thought was interesting, referenced his old job at Google. He said that his direct manager was in Silicon Valley and he was in Munich in Germany. So he said that he's kind of very comfortable leading a team online and everything that that entails. So I'm not sure if I'd go so far as to call it spin, but I think that I definitely looked like the pessimist in the call between us. Well, uh, Hannah, we also got a bit of a clue from uh, HTE, the people who own Australian Radio Network. They put out their update to the market on Thursday morning. Um, and the number that leapt out for me there was that 40% fall in April. Uh, I'm predicting the same for May as well, which is just a horror show for radio. Yeah, massively. That's obviously quite a huge decline. That's in there 
ad bookings across April, their revenue across April, they said direct clients are the biggest hit, 30% of their total revenues, which can usually be attributed to direct clients have been affected. But I think talking about, you know, having to search for the bad news, HT&E did a pretty good job of that as well, really. They kind of came out swinging saying, we still don't have any debt um, and we're still happily out here looking for more opportunities which are available in this current market and then you had to get pretty deep into the prezzo before you discovered that you know their revenue has dropped 40 percent at Aaron, which obviously at this point is by far their biggest their biggest company as they've kind of gone on a bit of a selling spree for all their non-audio businesses um so yeah i mean if we're looking at the silver linings hd&e are doing definitely doing the best Hey, that's a really good point. It's something I hadn't really thought about until you made that point, is companies that have money in the bank or no debt or both are the ones who are potentially in a really good situation. And, of course, there's been this sort of question mark over HT&E since it, it sold a bunch of its interests on what would it do with all of that money? You know, would it just get broken up, the radio station gets sold? There is an opportunity for them to spend that money on something that's suddenly cheap now. So I, I wonder, um, I, I wonder if we will see that. Well, we've already seen them increasing their stake in O Media. They snapped up um, some of the businesses' shares during that um, the retail sell. I think it definitely that seems to be what they're saying to me in this presentation. You know, they've made the point they've got over a hundred million dollars worth of net cash. They've got undrawn debt facilities of $250 million and they claim to have a good cash conversion in their radio business as well. So I think if anybody's going to do it during this time, HD&E might be the ones to watch, especially because as you mentioned, they have been on such a big transformation inside their own business. Okay. Well, another company which is uh, responded to goings on in troubles in the economy is a uh, is News Corp with the latest move that they're closing the commercial operation or at least the APAC commercial operation of of Storyful. And I must confess, the number of times we've written Storyful stories, but if someone were to put a gun to my head in a pub and ask me to explain what Storyful does, I would still struggle. Something, something, social media, something. Yes, correct. I think if you put the gun to a lot of people's heads, they would be very confused. I can remember a a friend of mine once took a job at Storyful and we were all like, so what are you actually doing? Um, Storyful is a social media and content intelligence agency, um, which News Corp acquired in 2013, I think. Um, Yeah, so they had an office in Sydney They will still have an office in Sydney because they are maintaining their editorial team, which is seven team members. That's because they offer a newswire service, which will continue, but they are closing all other parts of that team. So how do you make money? I I never understood how they actually physically made money in this business. From what I understand, they sell insights and intelligence as well as that newswire service. So that part of the business is what is closing in Australia. The sales, creative and intel teams are all going to be closed. Um, Some of that, there's been some interesting stuff in the last couple of years with them anyway. They closed last year, I think it was, they closed their Hong Kong office to roll it all into Sydney. So Sydney basically was their entire operations in APAC. So the fact that that's closing means they're essentially exiting out of the market minus the editorial team. They've obviously still got offices elsewhere. 
Um, they've still got big teams in New York, LA, Dublin, and London. Um, but yeah, from what I can tell, all that will be left in Australia from this point onwards is those seven editorial team members. And the other thing which has happened since the last Mumbrella cast was recorded uh, in this world is that the money did show up from Germany and Bauer did go through with buying pack mags. Um, not that they treated the pack mags staff terribly well once that actually uh, happened though, Hannah. No, um, I Monday was quite a confronting day for me. I spent the almost the entirety of the day talking to X at that point, PacMag staff. Um, so Monday morning, they turned up for work remotely. So they all logged into a Zoom chat from uh, Bauer ANZ CEO or Australia CEO now that New Zealand doesn't exist anymore. Um, Brendan Hill, who told them that due to the current COVID-19 conditions, there would be some changes and that they would be contacted if those were going to affect them. Um, following that, 60 PacMag staffers were contacted directly to be told they would be stood down, uh, they would be made redundant, and a further 15 were stood down completely. Um, that's kind of off the back of 70 Bauer staffers who were stood down last week. We've seen four titles confirmed to be closed until further notice so far that's l australia harper's bazaar okay and nw i've also heard men's health women's health and InStyle have also had the chop but i don't think that one's been confirmed yet but yeah talk about talk about a great first day of work turning up only to find out that a very large number of you will no longer be um going ahead in the position i think i think the sydney morning herald reported that at this point Bauer has made approximately a quarter of their workforce redundant over just the last couple of months. They came into this year with about 400 people, I think, and they're now a quarter down from there. So, yeah, tough times over there. Yeah, I guess the other thing that struck me just thinking about Bauer is the way it's treating some of its people that it's stood down. It's not acting like a company that cares about its reputation as an employer or intends to have some sort of constructive relationship with with people at the other side so there's been this mystery of uh, seemingly bauer says that it can't get a job keeper allowance for the people who've been stood down and i i know i i talked to to one source within bauer who um you know uh, was was amongst those many people stood down um they had very short conversations, you know, the, 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 their questions, uh, they still had more questions when they when their managers had to go on to the next call because they were being talked to one at a time. They were being told, well, you're, you're not actually eligible to the job keeper, but potentially they weren't even going to be able to go after job seeker because, of course, technically they still had a job, but potentially wouldn't have the paperwork to follow it through. So they're lost in this weird limbo. Now, there might be a way through, but Bauer just didn't seem interested in actually helping them find that way, you know, didn't have the time to to get to the bottom of it. Um, have we even got got to the bottom of this question of why it is that Bauer says and the the, the, the journalist union seems to be of the opinion as well that, that Bauer can't get the JobKeeper allowance for the people it stood down? No, there is a lot of different reporting here. Um from my understanding, it's completely inaccurate that foreign companies are not allowed to apply for JobKeeper. I mean, obviously, um, 
diversified communications that owns Mumbrella is a foreign company. So we have kind of been involved in that process. And from what we understand, that's not accurate. So that excuse doesn't work. I think I've also seen reported somewhere, I think the AFR was reporting that Bauer just doesn't want to open up its books, which would go back to what you were saying about how they are treating their staff. I've also heard um, from a couple of places that Bauer potentially has a buyer lined up for its Australian business. If that is correct, it kind of feeds into what you were saying about not particularly looking after its staff very well. And also, even in the titles that haven't been paused during this time, a lot of them have lost senior editors. A lot of them have lost a lot of team members who will be putting those titles together. And I know we touched about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that Bauer's already put a freeze on freelancers, which has kind of got it to the point where it's tough for its workers to even manage to put magazines out. To me, those aren't the actions of a publisher that's expecting in a couple of months it's going to come back in and everything's going to be hunky-dory and all these titles are going to go back to print again. So if Bauer does have a buyer lined up this side, it's going to be really interesting to see what they're left with and what that business is even worth by the time all these redundancies and stand-downs are finished. I find myself wondering, there are there are three major players in the consumer magazine market We've obviously talked about Barra and PacMags, the third being News Corps. It feels like in the space of a few months, News Corps will have gone from number three in the magazine market to potentially number one. Yeah, I was talking to someone about this the other day, actually. Um, You're right. Like At this point, from what we can see, News Corp is still performing fairly well, and they have got some of those really big prestige titles. You know, They've got Vogue, obviously, and I think considering some of the titles that are on the chopping block at Bower and Pacific, when they come out of this, it's going to be really hard for them to stand up against um, News Corp. My hot take in this moment is what I'm hoping will happen is that Bauer will go on this complete storm through which they're already doing and decimate the business. And then Seven will sneak back in, snap it back up for half of what they sold it for, James Warburton, making money on magazines. <laughs> that's a hell of a hot take considering the debt levels over at seven <laughs> look i didn't say it was a flawless hot take but it's one i will stand behind should it come true well next it's all kicking off in Tellyland. Lots going on in television this week. Uh, Brittany, let's start with the HBO Foxtel deal. Yeah, so Foxtel and Stan were kind of the two main players vying for the HBO deal. Foxtel is continuing to essentially be the exclusive licensee of HBO content in Australia. So it's a multi-year agreement with Warner Media, which is the parent company of HBO, And that's what I meant when I said that Foxtel and Stan were kind of the two competitors trying to lock something in, particularly as if sort of a deal didn't get struck, it would probably have meant that HBO Max, that streaming platform, would launch locally sooner. And that's another competitor for Stan, another competitor for Foxtel and, you know, in amongst the the streaming platform clutter. So, yeah, it means that, you know, they can continue having access to shows like Succession, Game of Thrones, Big Little Lies, which Foxtel has really used as a selling point for, you know, its subscription TV service, particularly as it struggles to keep 
subscribers on. So I think it was a really big win for Foxtel, but a win that they desperately needed. And presumably a win that came at enormous cost as well. Well, you would assume so. I mean, particularly for a company that's currently in cost-cutting mindsets. I mean, last month they made 200 redundancies, stood down 140 people, and then last week they cut another 70 jobs. So it must have come at a huge cost, particularly I know Hugh Marks, Nine CEO, said earlier in the week that they will kind of make aggressive plays for content and they will, you know, cough up what's needed to make sure that they have the right content deals. You know, he said that already knowing that Foxtel had clinched the HBO deal. So I'm sure that there was some big money on the line. Well, something I wondered about, because I know in your coverage, you made the point that no one is saying exactly how long the exclusive element will run for Mm. and that was something we saw with stan nine's what's now 100 owned by nine when they had the deal with disney it was some great content and i I guess it really helped get some subscribers for stan but there was also an argument it was a great shop window of disney content that when the disney streaming service launched and suddenly it was whipped away from stan all they'd done was they got consumers used to uh, all that wonderful disney product I wonder, is there something similar potentially going to go on with HBO when they're good and ready to launch the HBO streaming service here, then it will drop out of Foxtel at that point. Is is that a possibility? I think so, for sure. I mean, I specifically asked, how many years are we talking when you say multi-year? And yeah, I got a no comment. So I think it's it's the same thing with Stan and Disney, except that Foxtel already had the HBO content to lose, right? And I think that that's one of its kind of biggest selling points. So it feels like, you know, they've had a Band-Aid and they get to keep it on for a little bit longer, whether or not that will make ripping it off harder or it will, you know, inject some cash or maintain some cash, you know, with subscribers hanging on in the meantime. I'm not sure. I mean, KO is obviously really struggling at the moment with no sports, And then, of course, you know, Foxtel has has been pretty clear that they've got, you know, massive churn and and that, you know, they're leaking staff as well. So I think that it extends something that they already had rather than, you know, maybe getting people used to it and then stripping it away from them. They're already used to it. But I do think that, you know, give it a couple of years and HBO Max may well be ready to enter the Australian market. Well, Hannah, speaking of Foxtel, we've got some interesting shenanigans still potentially going on over the NRL with um, Nine and Foxtel, the rights holders um, for the normal NRL season. Um, Everything up in the air at the moment, including um, uh, potentially State of Origin and Grand Final, if if all of that happens. Um, The last few weeks, uh, and maybe forever, We've seen all the TV uh, companies doing their negotiating in public and in press releases. And it used to be bad enough when um, when it was on behalf of Foxtel and there'd always be a drop in the News Corps titles with, you know, Foxtel's about to walk away from such and such a deal. And, you know, generally they'd walk away about three times in any negotiation. Um, 
we're now, I, I always get a sinking feeling now when I see the nine newspapers, whether it's Sydney Morning Herald or the Age or the AFR, because, of course, they, they now get drops from the nine side of the negotiations. Um, where do you think it will land? Or is all this just some manoeuvres and we'll go right back to where we started from? Um, I think the posturing that we're looking at at the moment is mainly over how much they're going to pay especially because you'll remember a couple of months ago, Nine cited that it was looking to make $200 million of savings during this time. $130 million of that was from the NRL, and they were pretty convinced at that time that the season just wouldn't happen. Of course, we're now like 20 days away from the NRL season kicking off. So it is happening. And I think mainly the discussions at this point are about how much they should have to pay for that considering it's going to have to begin without any fans without anybody being able to watch the games and I've heard both sides of the argument for that I've heard people say well surely that means more people will be watching it on broadcast but then there is an argument to the fact that games are just not as good if there aren't fans there cheering on the players I think we've kind of reached an impasse at the moment where Foxtel have said that they're willing to welcome the NRL back with open arms. We still obviously don't know how much money that's going to cost them. But Hugh Marks, even just a couple of days ago, I think it was on Tuesday this week, Hugh Marks said that he was willing to let the NRL go and that he didn't really, Nine didn't really need it. Um, and Do also you believe that for one minute? <laughs> I don't. Um, and I don't think anyone else does either. I think, you know, that was during the Macquarie Australia conference when nine were putting forward their results. And I think maybe it was big words from a business that had to, as every other media business has to put forward some pretty um, unfortunate results during this time. So I don't think we're likely to see nine walk away from the NRL, but I do think they're going to do everything they can to dig their heels in and pay as little as possible. Next throwing light on the murky supply chain. It's time to start thinking about your Mumbrella Awards entries with the first entry deadline closing next month. Award entries are always a great way to pause, reflect and celebrate the campaigns, people and companies positively shaping the media, marketing, advertising, PR and production industries. With over 30 categories up for grabs, go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella awards for more information. This week saw the publication of one of the most anticipated reports in a while, an exhaustive investigation into how the programmatic advertising chain really works. Now, Hannah, I was, it seems like such a long time ago, but it was only oh gosh, not even two months ago that I was in London in very different times for the ISBA, the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers annual conference where they were talking about this report they'd commissioned. And I think it was the first time I actually uh, went to an event where where it was actually affected by someone not being able to turn up to speak because of the coronavirus. And suddenly it all became, became a little bit real. But the main topic of the day was just that programmatic advertising chain and uh, and ISPA had commissioned PwC to conduct a report just looking at every aspect of that programmatic supply chain from when the marketing dollar goes in to when at the other end the marketing, well, sense comes out at the media owner. And, um, and obviously, although this was a UK-specific study, um, the, the principles are much the same. So finally published this week, what did we learn? This report, I just spent 
about two hours of my day burying myself in this report. And it was, it's kind of so shocking that you don't even really believe it when you start reading it. Um, so as you said, this has been a 15-month investigation into it, which PWC admitted had taken way longer than they ever expected just because of how difficult it was to actually get hold of the information. Um, I, there's some really damning stats in here. 250 million data impressions they took for this report. And of that, only 12 of them could actually be matched. So all the rest were unaccountable or were unable to be matched um, and therefore weren't used. I think what the biggest takeaway from this is, is 49% of ad revenue that comes into the programmatic chain doesn't go to publishers. So publishers are only getting 51% of that money. Of that 49%, 15% of it was unable to be tracked by PwC, which means 15% of that ad spend is going nowhere at all. Um, then there was around 34%, I think, that was being used up just in the various fees, which also kind of didn't relate to each other. Nobody was charging the same fees. People were charging some fees for some things and some fees for another thing. It just, it's kind of felt like, you know, it was a bit of like, you know, when you, if you put a dartboard up on the wall and you just threw a dart and you were like, okay, we're going to charge this for this and it's going to be here, except this was information that PwC had found from some studies they did over 15 advertisers with 12 different agencies involved and yet still they didn't manage to really get any kind of concrete stuff. And for me, I suppose that one number which you just talked about, that fact that you can put in a dollar at one end and only 51 cents comes out at the publisher end at the other, that for me just suggests everything that's wrong with that supply chain. Yeah, um, that's kind of what everybody involved has said. The fact that you can literally say 15% of an advertiser spend goes nowhere, even in a disclosed programmatic model, it's you still can't see where at least a third of those costs are going. The fact that you can even draw attention to that kind of singles out the main problems in the programmatic um, model. And I think the main takeaways from this, the main recommendations from PwC are that a lot more needs to be done to kind of make this a lot simpler across the board, make it a lot more transparent, obviously, and also start kind of standardizing some of this stuff so that you know, one agency can't get away with charging 10 different fees that another agency doesn't charge any of them. And of course, and the other point that is worth emphasizing is the fact that they were looking at the premium end. If this is the premium end, imagine how murky it is further down the chain. Yeah, I think you can only imagine like, if this is the top data they were able to pull from, as you said, the premium end, you can only imagine what the data looks like the other end. And I think as you touched on, even though this is a, you know, this was a UK based study, it's obviously replicable across the world. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this impacts Australia, especially given the ACCC's current investigation into into ad platforms as well. So it'll be really interesting as we head towards the end of the year to see if this has any sort of ramification on the industry here. Yeah, that I guess is the big question, isn't it? Because I suppose it's come in perfect timing for the ACCC because this is all going to be such useful information for them. I, if they weren't already bringing in uh, PwC as a partner, surely they should now. 
And I think especially with this information that PwC already has, and it's really interesting when you read the report um, to hear PwC and the team involved talk about how difficult it was to deal with the agencies that they dealt with. And it basically sounds like it was a lot of back and forth between PwC and these agencies trying to kind of give them the swerve. I think considering they've spent 15 months dealing with that, if the ACCC are even hoping to get some sort of foothold into the industry here, they would definitely have to bring them on board. Well, I suppose the other thing, of course, is the ACCC does have some investigatory powers. So um, they at least might be able to uh, force a little more cooperation, potentially. We might get an even more damning report in between the two of them. That would be really fun. Next, the week in advertising. We now turn to the week in advertising and Zoe. Uh, first this week, Tourism Australia announced a domestic, and I guess it would have to be domestic, tourism push to highlight the best of Australia with a range of live streamed content. Zoe, I, I, I guess it was always going to be a tough year for Tourism Australia. Yes, it's been quite the saga for Tourism Australia this year. So it all sort of started off on Boxing Day for us and Christmas Day for those in the UK with the Kylie Minogue-fronted Mate Song campaign, which was to promote Australia and our beautiful lands and animals and plants to our UK cousins. But when the bushfire crisis started in January, that campaign was very quickly pulled As the bushfire crisis escalated, uh, the Australian government provided a $76 million grant to Tourism Australia um, to sort of help it along with domestic and international tourism campaigns, which led to the Holiday Here This Year domestic campaign that was released by Tourism Australia towards the end of January. And then... Soon after that, there was the There's Still Nothing Like Australia campaign, which was released towards the end of February. Now, both of those campaigns were put on hold uh, due to the escalating coronavirus crisis that we're now all experiencing. And with um, international tourism not really on the cards for anyone in the near future, they've obviously taken the strategy of pushing more domestic tourism starting to get people thinking about it now uh, so so that they're ready to take trips when everything opens back up. And what does this latest campaign look like? So it's a series of content that will be kicking off on Friday the 15th of May with a one-hour broadcast on TENS The Project and that will be uh, sort of led by tourism and entertainment personalities and then across the weekend there will be live broadcasts on across the social channels sort of highlighting the best Australia has to offer so the the Wiggles are going to feature and host a bit of a dance party Um, some fitness experts are going to be hosting workouts in Byron Bay that will be streamed live chef Matt Moran will be hosting a dinner party I'm not really sure how that will work virtually but we'll see how that goes And the week after, starting Monday the 18th of May, there's going to be a range of content that sort of displays Indigenous culture, arts and cultural experiences, wildlife, that sort of thing. 
the campaign's also similar to what the South Australian Tourism Commission has brought out. It's called SATV, and that is a range of content highlighting businesses and producers and tourism brands in the state that have been obviously affected by the coronavirus shutdown. And that's highlighting different sort of courses you can take through those companies, different products that you can buy, and really putting South Australia to the front of consumers' minds for when they can travel domestically again. So the lockdown isn't over yet. So what is the strategic thinking behind doing this now? So Tourism Australia's Managing Director, Philippa Harrison, said that the brands that continue to engage with their audiences in a crisis are the ones that tend to recover the fastest. Our marketing job right now is about keeping Australia on the front of mind for travellers by using this enforced period of self-isolation to engage with people in their living rooms, feed their escapism and inspire them to travel again once the restrictions start to lift. Also this week, another piece of marketing from McDonald's um, releasing its latest brand ad. Um, This time the idea behind it, pregnancy cravings. Yes, that's right, Tim. The ad that they've released this week shows a mother who, let's say, is very enthusiastic about the concept of having grandchildren and is a little bit pushy towards her daughter about that. At one point in the ad, they are shown in a store where the mother tells her daughter that when she was pregnant with her, she craved ice cream and pickles. Then later on in the film, the daughter reveals her pregnancy to her mother by providing her a McDonald's soft serve ice cream with two McDonald's pickles on the top. This ad is part of McDonald's overarching campaign that's been running since about October last year. And the strategy behind that is to really show Australians what McDonald's means to them in different contexts. The campaign kicked off with a TVC last year called Landmark, where people were giving directions to their friends and family based on where McDonald's is in their city or town. It then followed up with a TVC called Almost Home, which show, which sort of showed that no matter where you are, there'll always be a McDonald's, which I guess is pretty accurate. And then earlier this year, they had their Denise TVC, which showed a girl trying to earn her family meal at McDonald's by doing good deeds around the house. This is a great strategy because it's just true. I mean, McDonald's does mean different things to a lot of different people. And so across the TVCs they've already launched, there's something for everyone across the board. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Budget Direct announces the launch of its new Budget Direct Money Manager app. The new app is a smart and easy way to track all of your personal finances in one place. Budget Direct is also pleased to confirm that it's providing the new Money Manager app for free for all Budget Direct customers. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website. And until next week, thank you, everyone. Thank Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Toodle pip.